Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. I'm your host, Michelle Berard, founder and CEO of Urban Book Editor, and I am very happy to share this hour with you where we examine all those places where spirit meets life and the joys and challenges that may bring. Now you guys know I like to start by thanking Ms. Beverly Black and Tribe Family Channel for helping me create this space for us. Tribe Family Channel is home to an assortment of thought-provoking shows that explore life, spirit, business, and culture, including The Woman at the Well, hosted by Miss Beverly Black herself. Somewhere in the Middle was born on Tribe Family Channel, and though we've grown onto our own platform, we are ever grateful and loyal to our roots. To paraphrase an African proverb, we are here only because we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. I want to say thank you to my guest on the July 26th show, Andrew E. Guy. You can connect with Andrew on social media and at his website, andrewguyspeaks.com. If you miss that show, listen to the replay. You can find our complete show archives, including the July 26th show at the somewhere in the middle podcast.com. I also want to shout out Bruce George of the Genius is Common movement, which encourages all of us to embrace our inner genius and share it with the world. This is a really important message, and it's really, really, really important that you share it with the youth. But it's not just for the youth. We all need to be reminded sometimes that the world needs our genius. Learn more about the Genius is Common movement at www.geniusiscommon.com. Now, I am really excited. We have a new guests, a new interview, and I think you're going to really like this one, guys. It's really interesting. Jonasen Goldson is Director of Ethical Imperatives, LLC. After graduating from the University of California with a degree in English, he hitchhiked across the U.S., backpacked across Europe, lived in Israel for nine years, received his rabbinic ordination, then taught high school for 23 years in Budapest, Hungary, and in St. Louis, where he and his wife now live happily as empty nesters. Jonasen has published five books, including Proverbial Beauty, Secrets for Success and Happiness from the Wisdom of the Ages, and Fix Your Broken Windows, a 12-step system for promoting ethical affluence. He's also published hundreds of articles applying ancient wisdom to grapple with the challenges of the modern world and to find fulfillment in our personal and professional lives. So I'd like to welcome Yonason Golson to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. Rabbi, thank you for being on the show with me. It is my pleasure, Michelle. So you probably already know that I like to start my interviews with two questions. And that's because I really want to know about you. 
as a person as as and as a rabbi and as an author and so forth so if you're ready i'm going to ask you my two questions fire away Jonasen, who are you and how did you become who you are today well i like to call myself a passionate moderate I know that sounds like a political label, but it's not political and it's not a label. So let me go to the second part of your question and then we'll work our way back. Mm -hmm. uh, I graduated from the University of California with a degree in English and I love studying English because I love the power of words, the beauty of words. I love the opportunity to discover new ideas, new ways of looking at the world. But the problem with studying English is at some point you have to graduate and then you have to do something with it. So I don't necessarily recommend that others do what I did. But when I graduated, I put in a backpack and started hitchhiking across the United States. I did that for about a half a year. Uh, went across the Atlantic, backpacked across Europe. And eventually I ended up in Israel, where through an unlikely series of events, I found myself in a rabbinic college which was not something I planned. I had, I had very virtually no Jewish training or, or, or understanding of my own culture, but, but I discovered this vibrant society of scholarship, of, of spirituality, of community, and, and I, was, I was entranced. And it changed my, my whole, the whole course of my life. I, I, instead of going on to Africa and Asia and Australia, I, I ended up staying in Israel for nine years studying there, the, the ancient texts. Uh, I met my wife there. We had our first two children there. And after we, uh, we left there, we came back to the States, and I started a career teaching high school, which I did for 23 years. What I, what I really loved teaching high school was the opportunity to show young people how our ancient traditions have incredible relevance to the modern world and to our lives in dealing with the problems of contemporary society. And one of the ways that comes out is that if you, if you study Jewish uh, texts, if you, if you go to a contemporary seminary and walk into the study hall, if you walk into the public library, you drop your voice, you don't make sound, you don't scrape your chair, you don't ruffle your pages, everything has to be dead silence. You walk into a Jewish hall of study, and people are yelling and shouting and waving <laughs> their hands around and, and banging on the desks. I mean, it looks like pandemonium. Uh, and some of these debates can get pretty heated because you know, there's a lot of uh, minds, bright minds and different points of view and uh, coming from different places and trying to get to the heart of an issue. And it's, it's exciting, it's, it's vibrant. But you would think sometimes that these people are about to go for each other's throats when in fact, they're good friends. Everybody gets along because there is a common denominator. There is a search for truth mm. and a desire to get to that truth. And even though over the course of Jewish history, we have had our episodes of not being able to get along with each other. But when you consider that, that we are a, a nation that's been around for 3,300 years and we're still here and we're still vibrant and we're still practicing and studying the, the, the ancient ways, uh, that's, that's unique. There's, there's nothing like that in the world. And, and it comes from this core belief that we want to get to the truth. 
And, and that takes, that, it's not easy. Uh, I, I like to use the example of a, of a sailboat. I'm not a sailor, so I'm just telling you what I've heard. Um, if you, if a, a sailboat, you can sail into the wind if you tack back and forth. So you, you zigzag back and forth in order to go in a straight line. And, and I think that's a, a perfect allegory for what the search of truth is all about. Is we'll go to one side, we'll come back to the other side, we'll cut back and forth, and we're zigzagging in a straight line. Because that's how we develop the perspective, the perception, the, the vision, and the, and the breadth of understanding that helps us isolate the truth, focus on the truth, and stay true to that path. So, so that zigzagging back and forth, that's the passion. Right? Going to one extreme, going back to the other extreme, looking for how far can I go in my exploration? But the moderation is that middle line, that center line that we always keep coming back to. Not, not staking out a moderate position because it's in the middle, but going back and forth between extremes and always returning to some sort of, of normative uh, centrist approach. Uh, that's, that's what I think is really so much a, a, an answer to the problems of the world today. Because you look at our politicians, you look at our society, people have staked out these, these wild, wildly extreme positions. Nobody can talk to each other. Nobody can get along. We can't even have arguments. We just have shouting matches. And, and it's because we're so wrapped up in our ideologies and our egos that we've lost that desire to find the truth. And, and that's what I think we really need to, to recover that because that's ultimately what's going to help us and enable us to stay together as a cohesive society. Wow, you said a mouthful there because um, if you have heard me talk about the show, the purpose of the show really is to get us talking because I believe that one of our biggest issues is that we don't trust one another and we don't trust one another because we don't know one another. So the goal really for this show is to bring on people of different backgrounds with different journeys so that we can talk about it and hear about people's lives and, and see that we're more similar than we are different. And from there to hopefully find some common ground so we can have those discussions like you're talking about. Yeah, and the way you say that, it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm giving a TED talk in Colorado Springs in May. It's by the time this goes live, I hope it'll already be online, but that's, you, you just summed up almost exactly what uh, my talk's going to be about. And you know, when I saw the title of your, of your show, I, even before I listened, I said, this is the place for me to be. Oh, well, I'm glad because I really am interested in some of the things you said here. Well, first of all, it's just fascinating that you decided, well, I'm going to just hitchhike across the U.S. I'm going to hitchhike across Europe. You found yourself in Israel, and it sounds like you were on a sort of, I don't want to say confronted, but you were kind of confronted with the realization you didn't know a whole lot about your own uh, people, your own culture to some extent. Am I understanding oh, yeah. correctly? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was okay. agonizing reappraisal. I, you know, I've been through college. I traveled around the world. I, I was 24 years old. I thought I had life all figured out. <laughs> and then, then all of a sudden it's, hang on, <laughs> let's go back. You're not even at square one yet. Um, you know, I, I didn't even know, I didn't even know the, the, the Hebrew alphabet. I, mean, I hadn't heard of many of the major Jewish holidays. That was how, how secular I was, my was. 
Um, so it really took a, a tremendous act of will for me to even admit the possibility that there was something here of value. Um, and, and I, you know, I struggled, I grappled, I, I, fought, I fought the rabbis long and hard until eventually I just ran out of arguments. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, then it was either, okay, um, am, am I going to, uh, am I going to accept what they've proven to me and convince me of, or am I just going to walk away and pretend like it didn't happen? That's not something I was able to do. Wow. So let me ask you, so you were coming from a very secular background and you found yourself in a place that combined, if I'm hearing correctly, combined that intellectual curiosity that can come out of secularism with a spiritual, a, a deep spiritual foundation. What was it do you think that drew you in most? Well, I always had a sense and uh, that there that there's a there's a spiritual um let's say a spiritual compass uh, you know now we call it the soul mm -hmm. but it, it's it's pushing us it's guiding us it's driving us towards something you know we all want to feel like we're connected to something greater than ourselves if you look at the the twelve step recovery programs that's the first step acknowledge that there's something greater than yourself because if it's all about me, then I'm just going to wallow in my ego for the rest of my life. But if I'm part of something bigger, then I have a duty, I have a sense of responsibility. And I, I always felt that. I just didn't know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. um, it really, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon among secular Jews that, that we, we, we tend to look everywhere else first. We'll, we'll look into Zen, we'll look into Buddhism, we'll look, we'll look into Hinduism. Uh, I mean, you name it. Um, but, uh, but there's this, there's this sort of internal resistance to, to discovering our own culture and our own teachings. Um, and and the, the unlikely providence that led me into the situation where I was forced to confront it, where, where I, had, I came up against a rabbi who was extremely articulate. He was a college professor from New England. And um, he just had a tremendous ability to, to lay out the case in a way that was very hard to argue with. But you know, I, I wanted, I always wanted my life to mean something. I wanted to make a contribution to the world. And, and so in a sense, I was shing while I was traveling. It wasn't just happy or lucky. I just didn't know what to do with my life. Uh, the problem I found is that it's very stylish to say I'm searching for truth. But then if you say I found truth, that sounds kind of, that sounds kind of arrogant. <laughs> <laughs> Who do you think you are? <laughs> and how do you know you've got it? That's right. I mean, you know, there, there are a few billion other people in the world who don't see things your way. Um, but, uh, ultimately, I just, I just ran out of excuses not, not, to, uh, not to invest myself in this lifestyle. And once I did, I was all in. And, um, and I you know, full-time uh, studying for nine years. And eventually, I went into a rabbinic training program. And then I wanted to share what I learned with, with others and show young people that, uh, you know, give them, give them a head start that I didn't have. Well, you mentioned something I, I have to ask about. And it, if, and I want to make sure I heard you correctly. It sounded like you said that there is a tendency among secular Jewish people, and I'm presuming, pres presuming also particularly uh, as they're younger, you know, in 20s, ish, because I think this may be an issue for a lot of folks, actually, to resist looking into 
Judaism for guidance or purpose um, for their lives and instead to look at other traditions. What do you think drives that? Well, I think, I think it's probably not even exclusive to, to, to Judaism. Uh, you, you mentioned to me before we started that you have a fascination with other religions. Um, there, there's a sense of the exotic. You know, wherever we are, and, and in, in, in Jewish philosophy, there's actually a spiritual explanation for this, that, that the soul is placed into this world where it really doesn't belong. The soul wants to get back to the source, wants to get back uh, close to God where it, where it comes from. And so this is why we have this sense of yearning. We're always looking for something. We're looking for connection. We're looking for purpose. We're looking for meaning. We're looking for, for, for fulfillment. And there's a, there's a sense that that's, that's far away. And so instead of looking close to where we are, we naturally look for the horizons. You know, the, the truth can't be too close to me, otherwise I would have found it already. So the truth <laughs> must be far, far away. And, and I have to go to exotic places and study exotic things. Um, and that might be interesting and it might be enlightening. But sometimes we miss what's closest to us because we've set our sights so far away. Well, do you think perhaps that there's also maybe an inherent understanding of the soul that everybody's really saying the same thing. They're just maybe using different words. There's an element of that. Um, and that gets into a, a sort of more theological, philosophical uh, view, um, which maybe it will be for us to get into right now. Um, there, there are certain common foundations. Um, I mean, even if you look at the, at the three main monotheistic religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, which represents about half the population of the world, um, it's, uh, you know, it comes from, we have certain core values that we share. And you know, you, you make a good point that, that if we would focus more on what we have in common, we'd find a lot less reason to, to be squabbling all the time. Right. Because everybody basically says the same thing. Be nice to people. Don't bonk people on the head and take their stuff. You know, the rules are pretty simple, right? Like, you know, we, we need, I mean, human beings, we need guidelines. We, we need laws. Uh, you, you look at attempts to you know, like Karl Marx, another celebrated Jew, um, he had this wonderful vision of a perfect, perfect world where everybody has enough, everybody works for, for the benefit of themselves and everybody else, and everyone gets along. It's a wonderful system. There's just one problem. It doesn't work because people are imperfect, and we need structure, and we need, we need a society that, that creates that structure that holds us together. So there has to be a certain amount of of concrete, uh, delineated rules, laws, um, constructs that help us figure out exactly where the boundaries are, where the lines are. But you're right in the sense that ultimately what we're trying to do is contribute to a world where everybody does take an interest in everybody else, and where your problems are my problems, and my problems are your problems, and we're working together collectively to solve them. So I'm curious, so you, you've published five books, and is 
Fix Your Broken Windows, the most recent, the most, yes. is that the newest book? And yeah. it's a 12-step system for promoting ethical affluence. What does that mean exactly? <laughs> so there, there's, a, there's a perception that, that often rears its head in, in the business world that we have to choose between whether we're going to be ethical or whether we're going to be profitable. And my argument, argument is, is just the opposite. And there, there are studies and surveys to back this up. And the best way to achieve affluence and financial success um, and that professional success is by being ethical. Because when we take an adversarial view to the people that we encounter in the workplace, when it's competition, when somebody has to win and somebody has to lose, when we sacrifice long-term values for short-term gain, ultimately we undercut ourselves. We damage our relationships. We often damage our name. We can destroy our brand. And we also create a toxic environment where people aren't motivated to work. In other words, if, if my employees see me as trying to squeeze everything out of them for my benefit, then what's motivating them? They're going to do the least possible, keep their heads down, try to stand under the radar, and get away with as little work as possible. Whereas if they feel that I see them as members of my team, maybe even members of my family, and, and my success is their success, and their success is my success, then we create a community of people who are all committed to the same uh, goals, the same ideals, the same prosperity. And it's, it's like a high tide raising all boats. Everyone comes out ahead. People enjoy their work more. They're in a better mood when they go home. Their family lives are better. They, they spread that into their communities. Their neighborhoods are better. And, and we're all making more money. But it's so easy to get caught up in that immediate gratification of what's the bottom line? How can I make another dollar now rather than invest a dollar now, I can end up with $100 later. Uh, it, it's a hard sell to convince uh, professional people that, that ethics really is not something that, um, that slows down your growth, but something that accelerates your growth. So uh, when you are talking with, let's say, some manager at X Corporation, and you're trying to convey this message to them. What kind of, well, what's their pushback? What kind of, what kind of arguments do they give you for not pursuing this type of path? Um, it could be something like, well, that all sounds very good in theory. But we, 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 have, to, we have to watch the bottom line. We, we, we have to, 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 uh, to deal with the, with the realities as they are. And, and to that, I, I can bring uh, statistics that show when you have, when you have discontented workers, um, your turnover's higher, your disengagement's higher, your conflict's higher. I mean, worker disengagement and conflict is estimated to cost American businesses over half a trillion dollars a year. Wow. So you're telling me you can't afford to create a culture in your company where your people are engaged and loyal, and that's not even taking into account um, turnover, um, you know, onboarding, training, 
uh, that's just talking about the, the, the sort of corrosive culture that makes workers inefficient. Uh, when you add in all of the variables, it's, uh, it's pretty compelling. And especially when you look at companies that are, have a reputation for happy employees. I mean, Trader Joe's, um, people love working at Trader Joe's. You walk into Trader Joe's and, and, and these people are, are packing your groceries and everybody's having a great time. They love it there. Uh, you know, you fly on Southwest Airlines. They've had some you know, problems with the, with the airplanes themselves, which isn't really their fault. But the, um, you know, they're famous for the, the, the flight attendants coming on to, to tell you the, uh, you know, the same old rules you've heard over and over again. And instead of telling you something funny and they're cracking jokes and making everybody laugh, uh, they're having fun. The passengers are having fun. Yeah, I love flying Southwest. I'm a loyal customer because I know, I know that I'm going to enjoy my flight. So your workers are happier. Your customers are happier. You're making more money. Uh, instead of taking this narrow view, look at the big picture. There's there's tremendous uh, value to be gained in doing the right thing. So what would be some key elements? Let's say, let's run us through a quick, quick, what's the 12-step system look like? I mean, what's the first step and, and what should managers be looking for to see if they even need to think about this? Well, one, one, of the, um, one of the examples that I'm particularly fond of, um, not a, this doesn't resonate with everybody. Uh, I, I always go back to, again, to the ancient texts. And King Solomon says in the book of Proverbs, says, go sluggard, go lazy person and learn from the ant. Right? So on the surface, it seems very simple. You watch ants working, they're all working. Right? We call them worker ants. You know, they don't rest, they don't stop. They're just always busy, they're always doing stuff. Well, there was a... A study done not so long ago where researchers noticed that when ants are traveling in groups, when when the when the when the when they get when it becomes rush hour, <laughs> it gets congested. You have more ants going through a, a more narrow area, that they actually start traveling faster and more efficiently, which of course is the opposite of, of our culture. Right? When we're in rush hour, everything grinds to a stop. You mm -hmm. sit in a parking lot. So they wonder, what is it about ants that things improve when, they, when it gets more congested? And what could we learn from that? So they, they identify what they think are three factors in, uh, in the behavior of ants. First, ants have no ego. Right? When, when you're driving, when I'm driving, and, and it's crowded, and a car cuts in front of me, I get upset. I just lost 20 feet. <laughs> And so my ego starts getting off, right? And so I get more upset. So I start looking, how can I gain an advantage? What, what that actually does is it causes me to drive in a way that's more erratic, more dangerous, and, and contributes to the general, the general congestion, right? The ants, somebody, another ant cuts in front of them, they couldn't care less. They should keep moving along, right? Um, the second one is that ants don't mind bumping into each other. Now, this is uh, limited applications on our highways. But the principle you can understand. Right? What happens when you're when you're standing in a crowd and, and somebody bumps into you? Um, very often it's it's accidental. They might not even notice. But we're very protective of our personal space, so mm -hmm. we tend to assume the worst about other people. That guy, he just made a mistake. Bumped into me. He's not respecting me. Right? And so that creates uh, a form of tension. 
that ultimately is not healthy. Uh, and, and, and the third uh, element, which is very relevant, is that when, um, when things get more congested, the ants become hyper-focused. Okay. What happens to us when we get, when, when things so slow down, when they get busy, we start worrying. Oh my gosh, what, what am I going to get there? Uh, should I go another way? Uh, I should have gone a different way. I should have left earlier. Our minds are all over the place, which makes it even, even less focused on what we're doing right now and, and contributes to the general sense of, con, uh, of congestion. So when things become tense, that's a time for us to tighten our focus, to apply ourselves to the, to the issue at hand we can become more efficient. We can actually use that tension to our own advantage. Gotcha. Of course, I believe in traffic. I believe you should all, we should all have uh, books. I believe in an audible account that will keep you from going nuts when somebody cuts in front of you. I'm positive of it. That's my personal solution there. Absolutely. Uh, so, well then let's say you've identified that you, you need to, work on creating this ethical affluence in your uh, company or in your, I mean, presumably this could be an applied to any group any environment, right? Absolutely. Any so let's say you decide you need to do that. What's the first, give me three big steps that someone can take to start making those moves. Oh, let's see. Um, should have had my book in front of me. Um, one of the things we do, there, there's an interesting, it's another interesting study. Um, they, um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to this clearly enough. They, they, they did a study with pigeons mm -hmm. and they found that, that, um, pigeons are actually, uh, better gamblers than, uh, human beings. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember exactly how they studied this, but having pigeons choose between options and then discover when, when because when choose, when pigeons when, when things don't go well for the pigeons, they kind of give up and go away. Mm -hmm. They didn't get what they want to get away. Human beings have a certain we have a thrill of a near miss. Right? If, if you would think it would be the opposite. That if I came really close, I go to I go to the casino. I'll go to the casino. But if I went to the casino, um and and I and I missed. God, I have 32 on the on the roulette wheel, and 31 comes up. You would think I'd be really depressed, but actually, psychologically, for many people, that creates a buzz. I almost got it. I was, I was just one off, and that motivates them to keep gambling, even though the odds are not in their favor. There's this illusion that I'm getting closer, or that I'm one off, or that I'm almost there. And, and this is what often happens in our lives, is, is, is that we, we become, um, we convince ourselves that the next big thing, the next great thing is right around the corner. Uh, and in business, they have a term for it now, they call it the bright shiny object syndrome. Mm -hmm. uh, because in technology, I mean, every 15 minutes, they're coming up with a new, you know, something new, something exciting, something, you know, the next app that's going to change your business life. And um, we think that if I could just get the next best thing, if I'm, I'm almost there, it's almost here, uh, everything's going to change for me. And, and we don't actually focus on what's right in front of us. We don't actually think about the opportunities we have. And so we have to, we have, to have a sort of um, 
I sometimes think of it as a kind of split personality where part of our brain is focused on what we have right now, <clears throat> excuse me, the short-term uh, job, and we have to have a sense of the long-term consequences, long-term options. Where am I now? Where am I headed? And we're shifting back and forth constantly between what's of the immediate job, what do I have to do right now, and where is that going to lead me? What's the plan for the future? So it's kind of like that zigging and zagging you were talking about before in a way. Yeah, absolutely. So what else could someone do? Let's say, you know, in, in my company, I decide I want to promote ethical affluence. What's another step that I could take with my staff or, or coworkers to do that? Well, one of the, um, one of the issues that has become very relevant lately um, is conduct towards, uh, towards your coworkers, particularly members of the opposite sex. Mm -hmm. And, and this is something that while, while it's, it's certainly a critical value, but again, going back to the zigging and zagging, I, I think there's been a, a dangerous overreaction. Um, observers have, have commented that uh, people are so gun shy, they're so worried about saying something that will be interpreted as hostile or harassing or disrespectful, that it's stifling interaction, both professionally and socially. You know, it used to be that, that many people would meet their, their partners or as their life partners in the workplace, because those are the people that you spend most time with, those are the people that you encounter most often. Mm -hmm. And when we start becoming uh, so hypersensitive, like, oh, boy, what did that person mean by that? Uh, what did he say? Well, why is he, what was he thinking? Then we, we, uh, we prevent anything but the most superficial interactions. We don't really get to know each other. That's what we're talking about uh, when we started. We, we create a society, we create a culture where we can't get to know each other because we're so worried about saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, being perceived in the wrong way. And so there has to be a balance. And as we have to be, uh, this, is, this is one of my, uh, my mantras now that, that I believe that the problem with political correctness is that it's a kind of weaponized civility. And civility means that I'm conscious of how I'm acting towards you. Political correctness is, is me imposing on you how you're allowed to act around me. And those are two very, very different things. Uh, it's kind of like the difference between rights and responsibility. If I'm focused on my rights and you're focused on your rights, then we're going to be butting heads all the time. But if you're focused on your responsibilities towards me, and I focus on my responsibilities towards you, towards you, then we're going to be getting along very easily, very naturally. So the, the same idea with civility. I, if I'm conscious, I, I, I want to be polite, I want to be thoughtful, I want to be respectful. And at the same time, I recognize that people are human beings, and sometimes things don't come out the way we intended, and sometimes there are these little stumbles. Presume positive intent. Don't assume the worst until somebody gives you really good reason 
to be sure that they intended the worst. And, and if, we could, if we could sort of recover that balance in our, in our, um, in our interactions, then we could go back to creating a, a, a functioning, a thriving, and healthier environment. I'm, I'm going to give you a little bit of pushback, and I want to I get your thoughts on, on what I'm about to say. And I'm going to come at this from two different, two different places. One is, I, first of all, I don't think that regular, old, ordinary people out in the street are sitting here thinking the worst of of the folks around them when they have a slip of the tongue or they just say something not thinking. I don't think that at all. Um, I was just in a meeting the other day with, I think it was eight guys uh, and I was one of two women. And one of the guys said something about, you know, cause I, you know, was meeting with them about a technical document that I'm writing for them. And they were talking about the, the girls who do certain type of work in this facility. And someone said, oh, don't say girls. And I'm like, nobody's stressing over this. Y'all, y'all are making this a way bigger deal than either I or the other young lady. We, we aren't even paying attention to you guys uh, <laughs> from that perspective. And I think that's how most people are, frankly, um, in, in practical environments like this, you know, work environments and whatnot. But the other thing that I want to give I want to give a little food for thought is coming from this from the perspective of an African-American woman who's been in large and small companies, who's been in nonprofits. And in each of these environments, I had to be careful to go in and not be too black, not be too this, not be too that. I couldn't be too intelligent because in one environment, because I knew too much, because I had years of corporate experience behind me, I was told that people thought I was a know-it-all because I happen to know things like how a do not disturb button works on a, on a phone. Weird things where I'm like, that's just, that's how it works. I know this because I've had phones like this before. It's not a big secret what DND means, but yet those kinds of things were in the fact that I knew that was insulting to people who didn't know that because who are you to know these kinds of things? And at the same time, I couldn't be too black. I couldn't talk with too much slang and things of that nature. So there, there are groups of people who go into the work environment and have done for literally generations, always having to be perfect in some way from their perception because of, of the other. And then it seems like there's an awful lot of complaint when folks are saying, hey, could you be a little more perfect for me this time? You know what I mean? So I, I, I can see a lot of issues with, with what is becoming the narrative out there that there's been this, this great big overreach when there are people who've been living under those circumstances literally for generations and then add to it, I don't think anybody really is that serious about it. That Nobody's getting upset because somebody says girl instead of woman or coworker or whatever. I think the things that people are getting upset about are much more concrete and much more um, obviously uh, damaging or insulting to people. I think the narrative is getting a little out of hand with, with the pushback on that. But what are your thoughts about what I had to say about that? Well, your second point, I, I, I don't know, I see it kind of making my point. You are just being a professional person and there are people who are interpreting that 
as somehow inappropriate in the workplace. So the problem isn't with you, the problem is with them. So you're, you're telling them this is how something works and they're taking this as some sort of a, a, a showing them disrespect. Why aren't they presuming positive intent? Right? That's, that's the, the cultural attitude that needs correction, I think. Um, because ultimately, we, you know, if I don't know how to do something, and you do, I, I appreciate you pointing it out to me. Um, but there is a kind of immaturity that is not connected to age, where we want to look professional, we want to appear that we're completely in control, and therefore we don't want to be perceived as not knowing everything, because then somehow that's a reflection on us, as, a, as opposed to, and this is another point that I talk about, having that sort of childlike um, wonder of the world, and isn't it wonderful that you're showing me something I don't know, because now I know more, instead of me right. pretending that I don't know it, or that I know it already, and go on not knowing it. Uh, as far as your first point, yeah, we just had an incident in St. Louis a couple of weeks ago on one of our local radio shows where the, the host, who was been uh, done it for a long time, he'd been part of, part of radio for, for his whole career, and 80 years old, and he was interviewing a, a former colleague who had come back to town. It was a 75-year-old woman. So an 80-year-old man's interviewing a 75-year-old woman. They worked together for years. They haven't seen each other in years. And the first thing he says to her is, Man, boy, you look great which I think is kind of an innocent comment, especially right. between two people in their 70s and 80s. Um, and, uh, and his manager called him in after the show and said, you know, you're, you're, you're walking a line there. And, and he, he, he quit on the spot. <laughs> wow. So he I got do. called in because he, he complimented someone saying they look great. You look great. I mean, what, what could be more innocent than that? And that we've reached a place where, where I'm going to be warned that I'm crossing the lines of propriety, <laughs> especially the whole context. Um, it really, it really is out of control in some places. And you know, again, it's going to change from place to place, from culture to culture. You, you can be in right. places where I mean, I, I had an incident. This is already gosh, um, over 20 years ago. Well, um, our Vice principal in his teaching, she was upset uh, over a number of, of the other teachers, not me. I wasn't part of the group she was upset about. And she was getting very, you know, heated in expressing herself. And, um, and I scribbled a note and, and it said, you know, you're beautiful when you're mad. And I handed it to her privately. Now, and this one was 15 years older than I. Um, it's actually my cousin. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, I was just trying to, to defuse the tension right. with something it's that was light. Mm -hmm. she, told, she calls me in and she tells me she called her daughter, who's a lawyer, to ask if this constituted sexual harassment in the workplace. <laughs> and, uh, okay. <laughs> from, from her cousin? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That, that seems a little extreme. Yeah, would, we're both know. married. Her husband's a rabbi. I am a rabbi. <laughs> it's, but, yeah, it's okay. but from your cousin, 
if my yeah. cousin had passed me a note like that, I'd have, yeah, I'd have, I think it would have been taken differently. And just for the record, I have no problem with some someone saying that I look good. I look, you look fabulous. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> just for, yeah. that's take, my take personal. In the spirit is given and have a sense of humor. And, you know, it's not. We're not no. talking about people making you know with with or not with the profanity and with innuendo. I mean, that's a whole different story. Or or these sort of shiny right. remarks that you can make over and over again. There's a pattern of behavior. I mean, we've lost the ability to differentiate between these these shades of, of very dark gray from very light gray when really there's there, they have nothing in common. Right, right. Well, I, yeah, I've had some thoughts on that myself with regard to other issues, but we could go on with that absolutely forever. Um, so Rabbi, please share with us where you're going to be, how people can catch, catch up with you. Are you going to be, did I hear you say when we were talking earlier that you're going to do a TED talk? I am I'm giving a TED talk in the, in May in Colorado Springs. I'm very excited for that. Um, and uh, so this, this uh, by the time you go, you go live with this, uh, it'll already be after that. Is that correct? Um, uh, yes. Yeah, so I, I hope by then it'll actually be online. So uh, you can catch up with me certainly on my website, which is my name, Jonas and Goldson. And it's also the name of my business, which is Ethical Imperatives. And uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Instagram. And, uh, and I'd be delighted to uh, you know, continue the conversation with, uh, with any interested parties. Awesome. So uh, the website is ethicalimperatives.com. And they can find you on what, LinkedIn, all of those under your name or under the company or both? Under my name, Jonas and Goldson. Jonas and Goldson, Y-O-N-A-S-O-N, Goldson, G-O-L-D-S-O-N. Catch up with them on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, all the usual suspects. And where can we find your books? Uh, you find them on Amazon. Uh, my last two are the ones that are, are most relevant. Uh, the, uh, the Fix Your Broken Windows, which is how little, little changes can make big differences. And uh, my other book is called Proverbial Beauty, which blends the king, wisdom of King Solomon with, uh, with Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa. Uh, to discover lessons for happiness and success. Awesome, awesome. Jonas, and thank you so much for being on Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Barard. It's been a real pleasure, Mitch. Thanks for having me on. Next up, our good friend Julia Black will be joining me for True Talk. I know building a website can be intimidating, but you need a place where your audience can connect with you. Instead of fighting with technology, Try the easiest, most flexible website builder available. With templates for all types of websites, ranging from landing pages to e-commerce, Urban Book Editor's platform makes creating an author website quick and easy. Just add a section, upload your photos and videos, type your text, and you're in business. It couldn't be easier. And if you sign up for an annual plan, you can get 10% off the first year. Just use discount code First year. That's one S T Y E A R. The number one S T Y E A R in all caps. Take advantage of the 14 day free trial. No credit card is needed. 
visit urbanbookeditor.com and select Create Your Author Website from the menu bar at the top of the page. No more struggling with technology. No more paying a small fortune to developers. Create beautiful websites without learning to code. Spend more time writing and less time worrying about your website. Just go to urbanbookeditor.com and select Create Your Author Website. So we are back with Julia Black and True Talk. Julia, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I love being here. So, you know, you and I were talking, you know, we talk offline a good bit and have conversations that I like to bring online. And we were talking about becoming business people, growing as business people, and how our personal ethics and values can inform what we do as business people and how we run our businesses. And I'd like to get a little insight from you about how you work with balancing your personal ethics and bringing that into your business. Well, I think the biggest thing that I try to do is whenever I'm going to make a business decision, really, whether it's bringing on a contractor or, you know, getting a business card made, um, you know, everything is, okay, what are my values and is this, is, does this conform to my values? So if we're talking about, you know, hiring on a contractor, then it's, okay, I want to make sure that this contractor is paid adequately or that they think that they're paid adequately and that it fits with my business. So then, um, you know, so there are conversations associated with that. There are conversations associated with timing and all of this other things with every single project. So even though I have a contractor that, um, who's an editor that works for me regularly, there is always a, hey, I've got this project and I think it's coming up this time. Is this going to work for you? Yes or no? Here's how much I'm thinking of paying you. Does that work for you? Even though we kind of talked about it before she came on and just make sure that everything's kind of copacetic there. When it comes to things like business cards, right? So I'm, I do my best to reduce my carbon footprint kind of where I can. Um, business cards is one of those things that I need right now because all of, all of my, all of my business is coming from network meetings and meeting people and kind of doing that until I, until I feel like I can move it completely to the online space, then we can chat about other things. Then, then I can think about getting rid of them. But in the meantime, then there has to be, then, then how can I fix that? Well, I can make sure that I'm using recycled paper or I'm using paper, um, if it fits into my budget paper that's easy to, that, that dissolves easy, um, sometimes that's not possible. Um, but, but there are steps, right? I could take steps to move in that direction, even if it can't just be, you know, I've got to have only digital business cards um, and all of my communication has to be digital, which is just not practical at this point. So I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in just taking things in baby steps until you can get to the point where you can completely fulfill whatever your values are. Well, and that's really key because, you know, you cannot always do everything you want to do right at that moment. I know that's, you know, business people tend to be big thinkers, Right. Yeah, we, we tend to we tend to have big visions for what we want to do, and sometimes it's easy to get ahead of ourselves. And 
also to feel down on ourselves if we don't yeah. achieve whatever that lofty goal is. Like you mentioned, you know, reducing your carbon footprint, that may be an incremental steps thing where uh, right now you're producing certain things in print because you're going to networking meetings, but then maybe next year you're saying, hey, I'm going to give people PDFs I'm, and that I'm going to use mm -hmm. that as a way to get their email addresses anyway. And then I'll email them the PDFs or send, give them a link to the PDFs and they can just pull it up on their phones. Mm -hmm. So there are different ways that you can uh, do that. And then of course, uh, do it in baby steps, like we were talking about. Mm -hmm. But then there are other pieces. Like for me, I know one of the challenges was figuring out when I needed some help and what type of help I needed. And I made a bad decision. I really did because I was thinking about that process more from the perspective of the person I was bringing on because I wanted to be so fair and so um, responsible for that person. Yeah, I felt very responsible for, for the person I was bringing on, but I did a disservice to the business in doing that. So there also has to be a balance, right? Mm -hmm. When you're trying to make these decisions and be as ethical as you can, because then you can actually hurt your business if you're not careful mm -hmm. about that. And you have to be careful not to beat yourself up when you make a mistake, right? Yeah, I mean, there's this, that's, how we, that's how we learn. And, and that's really hard for me. Like I'm still working through, I'm still a recovering perfectionist. Um, <laughs> still a lot of, there's a lot of me beating myself up about a lot of things. Um, so, but, but, but for me, there's, there's a lot of self-talk that goes along with that. So it's like, no, this is, you know, this is what's good for your business. And, you know, um, you know, it kind of, it kind of goes into you and I have talked about this before offline and in other situations where we talk about trying to hire, hiring someone and them telling us what their, what their, um, what their fee would be and not trying to talk them down as much as just saying, I can't afford that, but that's, but that's my goal. Right. My goal will be eventually to work with you, but right now that does not fit into my budget. I'm sorry. Um, and being okay with that. And then on the flip side, doing the same thing with the business. If someone comes to you and says that I can't afford that, then not reducing your price, but saying, okay, if this is something you're interested in, you know, can we, can we maybe cut it in half and we'll do half of the work at the same fee, just for, you know, just do less work for the same, for whatever. Am I making sense? <laughs> yeah. Or, or one of the things that I offer to my clients is to do things by milestones. So right. it's a project of a certain amount. We take a deposit, we do work to a certain point, And then when you're ready to move forward, we get another piece of that um, fee and right. then move forward. Or maybe offering multiple packages so that there's a lower tier package, a middle tier package and a higher tier package so that there's something for people at different price points. Right. But one of the best pieces of advice I ever got from anybody, uh, a friend of mine who owns a business uh, in New Orleans told me never discount your rates. And she said that 
the reason is the person you discount your rates for is the person who's going to cost you the most time and you're going to actually end up hurting your business because you're going to spend so much time on that person it's a value issue right people who are willing to pay your full rate value you more and they recognize that they can't monopolize your time because you are a busy person and right. you have things to do and that, that work to complete. And mm -hmm. I, I found that to be true. Yeah. But it's, it's difficult sometimes to reconcile that when you want to help people. And mm -hmm. I think that's where it's difficult sometimes for business people, especially new business people, people who are growing into that role mm -hmm. to figure out, where they should be on that spectrum in terms of balancing their values and their desires to help with, you know, what they need to do for themselves and for their businesses. Right. And part of that too, to be honest, particularly when you're starting out is, um, and I saw this a lot in the recession when I was in corporate is that if there's no money coming in and somebody comes in and says, you should do it for less money, there's this tendency to do it for less money um, because you do need the money to come in. And so when, when there's not a lot of money coming in and someone says, okay, well, can you discount it? Um, you know, you have to, you have to stop and go, no, this is what, this is what, this is my value. This is how much I charge. This is how much this is, for the amount of work that this is going to take and the amount of money that it's going to take, this is important that I get paid this much money. And again, set it up in milestones. Like you mentioned, we can do this much. We can do this much now. This is what's going to give you the most bang for your buck. We can do this now and we can do this other stuff later when you can save the money and have it. But this is what I charge and this is where I'm at. Um, well, and you know, that's really important for female business owners as well, because I think there is sometimes a tendency for people to look at women a little crooked, a little side eye when they ask for their rate. When you put your rate down there, sometimes people want to kind of dictate what you should earn. And going from employee where someone else did kind of dictate mm -hmm. what you earned to business person and being able to balance all of that, again, with your desire to help and your desire to serve and, and your personal ethics and values, sometimes there's a tendency to say, okay, I'll discount my rate. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's really important for us as women business owners to realize that that is not our responsibility. It's just like if I wanted to go buy a Tesla right now, right now I couldn't do it. Maybe I can do it in a year. Maybe I can do it in two years. But right now I can't do it. That doesn't mean that the Tesla is too expensive. That means that I'm not in a position to do it right now, right? Right. So we really have to kind of own our value mm -hmm. and balance that with our ethics. Mm -hmm. So if you had three main takeaways for people, you know, particularly business people who are dealing with being the best, the most ethical business person they can be from both maybe an employer side and a service to client side, what would they be? Uh, I would say first, figure out what your values are when it comes to um, employees and contract workers, when it comes to everyday stuff um, and the things that you want to, that you want your business 
the values that you want your business to be known for. Figure that out first and come up with three to five. And you don't even have to have them posted. Just know what they are in your head. Um, and then secondly, figure out what little steps your business can do to help live up to those values. What, you know, and what, what's possible now and what's possible 10 years from now when your company is built out um, and making money and is a, and is a, is a well-oiled machine, what, what all of those steps are. Um, and then, um, most importantly, don't beat yourself up if you fail. <laughs> um, yeah. Yes, because there will be failures. There, there will, will be, be failures. <laughs> there, there, just, there just will. There will be failures. Um, so don't beat yourself up if you fail. Um, have some, you know, affirmations ready for you. Well, this, you know, this didn't work out and that's okay. Um, I, will find a, I will find a better solution. Um, you know, affirmations that you can keep telling yourself as you, in, instead of kind of spiraling into the kind of negative. Mm -hmm. um, and then being okay with taking baby steps because when you're starting a business, you are not, most of us do not start a business and automatically make millions of dollars to be able to do everything that we want to do. So be okay with taking baby steps to move in the direction to fully execute whatever your values are and be okay with that in the meantime. I love it. I love it. So guys, we've got our three main takeaways here. Uh, figure out what your values are regarding your employees, regarding how you serve your clients and figure out how that works into your business and how you can translate all of that to your service. I forgot the second one, Julia. <laughs> That was the second one. The that was one the second one. Not, that was the second one. The third one is to not beat yourself up if you fail. <laughs> don't beat yourself up if you fail. That's <laughs> don't beat yourself up if you fail. And also baby steps. Be open to taking baby steps. You don't have to do everything all at once. And also, like if you have a kind of brain fart while you're on the air, forgive yourself. Forgiveness. <laughs> Because it happens. That's okay. <laughs> it happens. It's, you know, forgiveness is divine, they say. So, Julia, thank you so much for being on True Talk. Thanks for having me. I love being here. Well, that's our show this week, guys. You can reach out to me online at urbanbookeditor.com or michellebarard.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram as Urban Book Editor. Send me a note. I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to send in some topics you'd like us to cover on the show. Make sure you tune in for the show on August 23rd, 2019, when my guest will be author LaShawn versus Shanique. You can find us twice a month on Fridays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Mountain, 7 p.m. Central, and 8 p.m. Eastern at the Somewhere in the Middle Podcast.com. Let's continue the conversation. You guys be good, stay mindful, and remain prayerful. Peace and blessings, y'all.